This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another podcast of the History Channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Luca Heberle, and today I'll be talking to Dr. Joshua Zavala about his new book, Beyond Patriotic Phobias, Connections, Cooperation and Solidarity in the Peruvian-Chilean Pacific World, published by the University of California Press. I'm very excited uh, to talk with you, Josh, and thanks for accepting my invitation. Thank you, Luca, for inviting me. Appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. To begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up in a kind of very working class uh, Mexican, Mexican-American community in San Bernardino. I'm a first-gen college student, um, uh, and I went to the University of California, Davis, to initially actually to study chemical engineering. Uh, and I quickly figured out that chemical engineering was not what I should be studying. <laughs> Soon thereafter, I kind of wandered around uh, different parts of the campus, and eventually I found history as well as sociology, and I ended up double majoring in that. But what I would say is kind of really important for me in that kind of uh, undergraduate experience was that uh, I found an, an undergraduate advisor, uh, Charles Walker, who would take me as well as a bunch of other students to Cusco for a summer abroad program. And really that was the first time I had been anywhere outside of the U.S. besides Tijuana and uh, uh, just across the U.S.-Mexico border. And that really kind of changed my outlook on, on the world and on society and really uh, you know, pulled me into doing Latin American history. Um, after the Cusco program, I went on to do a semester abroad in, uh, in Concepcion, Chile, um, where it was kind of like a, a Spanish intensive program. And then later I uh, did a summer uh, quarter abroad in, in Havana. And so all those kind of elements of Latin American studies and Latin American history really kind of you know, drew me into the study of Latin America as a whole. And after graduating um, from undergraduate, I went on to do union organizing full-time for a couple of years in San Diego, California, um, with AFSME Local 3299. Uh, and that, I think, really helped shape the way that I thought about kind of labor and the labor movement. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I come from a kind of really working class background in terms of my family. Um, 
so I had, had I had had that experience then, kind of growing up in that atmosphere. But I think working for a labor union day in day out uh, showed me a little bit about how organizing happens um, outside of kind of student politics. Um, afterwards, I went on to do a master's degree at Tufts University. Um, uh, again, wanting to do kind of labor history, I, I went there to work with Peter Wynn. Um, and then afterwards, I went on to Cornell University to do my PhD. Um, and, you know, I'll talk a little bit later about some of the kind of reasons why I went there, but um, the kind of emphasis on historical geography, on thinking about space, was one of the kind of big pulls for me. Um, and while doing graduate school work, I also, you know, did some uh, organizing with the Cornell Graduate Students United, uh, trying to kind of, you know, work on uh, uh, a uh, uh, unionization campaign for graduate student workers uh, on campus. And after graduating from, uh, from Cornell, I have been at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, which is just outside of Orlando. I'm starting my fourth year here uh, now as an assistant professor um, where I teach courses on modern Latin America, about colonial Latin America, uh, as well as histories of the Pacific um, and anything that might fall within those kind of broad um, categories. I think that's a great introduction. So to begin uh, digging into your book, since not all listeners will necessarily know about this piece of history, I thought we could begin with an overview of the traditional narrative of Peru-Chile relations, a narrative constructed around the War of the Pacific that you seek to question, while recognizing the importance of nationalism in both countries' histories. So how's this here, the history of Chile and Peru commonly recounted? Yeah, I think this is you know the right place to to, to begin uh, any conversation around this topic, and I think the traditional narrative of Peru-Chile relations kind of centers around the War of the Pacific, uh, which runs from uh, 1879 to 83 or 84. Um, and the basic idea here, right, is that in the aftermath of independence from Spain, the kind of exact border between uh, Chile and Bolivia was a little bit unclear. And that both states kind of had to negotiate and have conversations around where exactly that border would be uh, up until more or less 1874, when they agree on kind of a, a border uh, on the 24th parallel south. Um, and one of the kind of reasons the Chilean state agrees to this border uh, is the condition that kind of taxes would not be raised for the next 25 years. And this is an important condition because much of the mining that was taking place in this region Uh, was done by uh, Chileans or Chilean-oriented uh, companies or British-slash-Chilean companies. Uh, well, we have kind of some political changes, some economic changes that happen in the kind of years thereafter, and the Bolivian state does impose some new taxes on minings. The Chilean military then occupies the port city of Antofagasta. The Bolivian state declares war, and since Bolivia had a kind of secret agreement with Peru, the Peruvian state is pulled into this war. And this all kind of takes place in 1879. And by 1883, Peru signs the Treaty of Ancon, which ends their engagement in the war, and Bolivia signs thereafter in 1884. But what's important, I think, are a couple of things here. One is that those few years of war are particularly difficult. They're particularly violent. They're particularly brutal, right? 
the Chilean state occupies Lima. Uh, it conducts you know military campaigns in the Andes, um, and this was an, an extremely violent affair. And in the aftermath of this war, the Chilean state wins, and you know to be clear, they win via uh, violence through the war. Uh, parts of southern Bolivia and southern Peru. And this land would be incredibly profitable because of mining ventures in this area. Um, and this is the reason why Bolivia is still, to this day, a landlocked country. And so this, this war, in turn, is you know, the, the basis uh, from which many people kind of use to kind of construct the Peruvian-Chilean relations. Kind of Chile as an aggressor nation, as taking land through war, as profiting from it, and kind of never really looking back. And Peru was kind of a victim of this war as being thrown into chaos because of the war and as a kind of uh, another moment of national failure, um, right? So we have kind of all these writers uh, in Peru writing directly after the war of the Pacific, thinking about why Peru failed in fending off Chile during this time period. And from, from, from there, we have all kinds of nationalist narratives that rely on pitting uh, prove against Chile. And one of the classic examples of this is, is Pisco, the, the liquor produced in both countries. Uh, we see discussions uh, on both sides of who invented it, of who makes a better version of it, uh, and any number of other kind of uh, uh, questions on that issue. In fact, when I was in Lima doing uh, research at the AGN, Right before you get to the sala for for the you know for the investigadores, there was a an exhibit in the hallway, and that hallway it was the exhibit was all about pisco, and it was about in essence that Peruvians had created it, and by implication, hmm. uh, Chileans were not involved with the, with the creation and the founding of pisco, right? And I think so, we see something similar happen in the Chilean case when we see, particularly the last few decades, discourses around Peruvians. Uh, who are living in Chile, uh, discourse that is in large part fueled by xenophobia and racism, and I think is a part of this longer history of the conflict. And for my purposes, all of this, I think, results in the idea that Peru and Chile, almost by nature, almost by definition, must be against one another, right? Whether it comes to Pisco or it comes to politics or it comes to soccer, the traditional narrative suggests that conflict is the only path, the only way that these two countries uh, can uh, interact with one another. Uh-huh. Uh, just in case uh, the listeners might want to know, I'd say that in the last few years, the Pisco Wars have receded to the background. But <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> so now, uh, just again, uh, before we dig deeper into each chapter of your monograph, could you comment on the influence transnational historiography has had on your work? How does it help you to better understand the historical processes? Yeah, the, the, the kind of transnational approach to doing history was incredibly important to me in how I thought about and framed this work. Uh, one of the things that was so important for me when I was picking PhD programs was that the professors uh, at, at the program, that they would be involved in thinking about historical geography, that they would be thinking about the kind of connections between the local and the transnational. And at Cornell, I had the chance to take classes on historical geography, on transnational history. And I'm grateful that my committee was, you know, uh, uh, fully committed to a project of that, of that type. And in my case, the transnational approach allows us to 
move along with people, ideas, and goods as they circulate past national boundaries. And by following them, I think that we can see some of the connections and processes that we may not have otherwise seen if we have if we had stopped at a national border. One thing, though, that I also kind of want to make clear, right, is that uh, although transnational history in the U.S. has really been, you know, uh, a hit over the last two or so decades, two and a half decades, um, this is also pulling on a much longer uh, uh, historiography, right? People have been writing transnational history for quite some time, particularly within Latin America. Um, and so for me, what I think is what is kind of important were thinking about transnational works and transnational framings that centered water and oceanic spaces in particular, mm-hmm. right? So for me, um, reading Burdell's Mediterranean was exciting and, mm. and inspirational. Um, but also something like Eplik Haofa uh, writing about Oceania, uh, that was also something that made me kind of think about oceanic spaces in a new way. Um, but I also wanted to to make sure that I didn't fall into the what I thought was the kind of trap of some of the transnational literature, which was just kind of following people to follow people to follow people. Mm. And that by doing so, we kind of sometimes would lose track of the local. And so I wanted to make sure that the transnational and the national and the local kind of all kind of worked simultaneously. And so for me, um, something like Jacqueline Nassie Brown's work on Liverpool or or my advisor, Raymond Crabe's work on Santiago, Chile, were important for me to kind of always be situated in a particular place while at the same time paying attention to the transnational. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's very clear. Perhaps the main topic of your first chapter is the international character of life at the Pacific coast and the sea. Why was the composition of the uh, maritime workforce so diverse? If I were to wake up as a stevedore uh, born in 1880, what would my co-workers be like? How would they have been recruited to work with me in Callao or Valparaiso? Yeah, um, the Pacific world as a as a cosmopolitan world is, I think, central to the first chapter and uh, lays the foundation for the rest of the book. Uh, and what I'm trying to show in this first chapter, and that kind of bleeds into every other part of the book, That the purple that the people working on a Peruvian or a Chilean ship, that there were a mix of folks from different countries around the world. And part of this has to do, I think, with the nature of the maritime world in general, of the movement of ships from one place to another, of moving goods along with uh, and the people moving the moving along with those goods, right? But part of this also has to do with um, the decisions that working class people made on these particular ships. So one of the things that I try to Uh, discuss in the book is the the hierarchical nature of some of these ships uh, and how that uh, setting pushed for working class people, for, for maritime workers to desert ships. And in turn, they kind of recreate these cosmopolitan worlds uh, along the coast, right? So even if the, uh, uh, you know, a Chilean, for instance, might be on a Chilean ship going up north, you know, past uh, through Uh, uh, Peru onto, you know, Panama or what have you, if the condition on the ship were not to their liking, they could simply desert the ship and in turn, you know, land in a, a coastal Peruvian city and stay there for a while and in turn create uh, this kind of uh, cosmopolitan port life in that new port city. 
And while there, they might take up another job uh, and in turn, again, make that port city global. Uh, so as a Chilean stevedore in Vaparaiso, for instance, you might work with a lot of different people in Chile, or they were from Chile, I'm sorry, but you also probably lived in a neighborhood that involved people from across the world. And in the case of um, Peru, at least, uh, what I try to show in here is that not only are Peruvians mixing with Chileans and you know people from Australia or from the Philippines or what have you on uh, in, within this maritime world, but they're also probably meeting Peruvians from different parts of Peru for the first time that we can track in some cases the kind of international uh, shape of this uh, maritime world, right? Of folks from Callao meeting somebody from a department, uh, you know, on the other side of uh, of the country, uh, and then all of a sudden they're working on the same ship with one another or at port with one another. And I think that's also an important element here in this uh, cosmopolitan world. And as far as the kind of labor recruitment issue, um, in both Peru and Chile, we have a kind of literature on the enganche, right? The uh, the hook system to hook someone mm -hmm. and pull them into uh, into a, a labor a new labor regime. There's much less work though on the uh, the enganche and how it functioned within the maritime world, and but we see the a very similar process happening in uh, for 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 ships, right? And one of the more kind of outrageous scenes that I that I wrote about in the uh, first chapter is when some workers in the northern Chilean city or port city of Antofagasta in 1914. They go out for a drink with the person in charge of doing the hooking, the enganchador, and they drink so much, they black out. And when they wake up, they're on a ship heading to Hamburg, Germany, a four-month-long trip. Uh, none of the men remembered signing up for the job, and none of them had the cash advance that they had supposedly received. Um, but we know of this process because they're writing back to the Chilean consulate saying, hey, we didn't sign up for this. I suspect that this is this was a relatively regular affair, right? Of just like in the rural world, of encantadores kind of hooking people via, you know, promises and booze and whatnot to sign up for some of these ships, and then those folks not really realizing it until it's much much too late. That was quite the the costly uh, hangover. <laughs> I, I I think I, I I posted a picture of that part of your book in Twitter, coincidentally. Um, and, well, now that we've touched upon the recruiting of labor, I'd say we must mention uh, one of the bleakest uh, parts of both Peruvian and Chilean history of the time, which is the coolie trade and the kidnapping of Polynesians. Why were ships sailing in search of forced laborers? And who was involved in this business? Yeah, it is, it is a very... Um bleak moment in the in the book that is absolutely for sure um you know one of the problems that the peruvian state is um trying to figure out in the 19th century is the problem of labor right so from the colonial period up through the 1850s one of the answers to this problem particularly uh, along the coast is enslaved africans and as abolition approaches in the middle part of the 19th century we have the beginning the beginning to use the use of uh, indentured Chinese laborers, uh, which is, you know, suspended for a bit and then reintroduced later. Um, and within that kind of time period of suspension, some in Peru began to look to Oceania as a, as a possible place of labor recruitment. And so in the early 1860s, we see many Peruvian and some Chilean ships 
heading into Oceania to engage in what uh, historian H.E. Maud called slaving in paradise. And, you know, I think since Maud wrote his book, uh, Gregory Cushman uh, has, has noted that there is a lot of the slaving aspect to it, but that some also may have voluntarily joined because life in certain parts of Oceania was becoming more difficult due to a recent La Nina effect. So that, I think, has to be taken into consideration. Still, nonetheless, many of the folks who are being taken to Peru are, are tricked or forced onto ships. Um, and as, as you know, this was a total disaster, right? We have many of these folks dying en route. We have many of them dying in Peru, many becoming sick and landing in hospitals. Uh, and then just a few years later, as the Peruvian state is forced to kind of end these ventures uh, into Oceania, they decide to try to take some of these uh, men back to Oceania. And in the process, many of them die from things like smallpox. Uh, and some of them were even dropped off on the wrong islands. And it's, it's, um, it's a terribly sad moment in, the, in this, the kind of history. Yet at the same time, it kind of ties into broader histories of the Pacific um, and blackbirding. It ties into long, to other histories of, for instance, the U.S. and former uh, uh, Confederates going into the Pacific in search of the continuation of slavery, right? And it's uh, something that when I teach to undergraduates, and I tell them this kind of story and we discuss it, uh, many of them are just totally puzzled at the kind of terribleness of this plan. Uh, yet that's exactly what we have transpiring in the 1860s. Um, you know, in the case of the Chinese laborers is a little bit different in that um, it happens over a longer period of time. Um, the kind of way the labor contracts there are functioning are a little bit different. Um, but yeah, but, you know, one of the things I wanted to make sure to bring out in this, in this chapter was, uh, the oceanic part or the Oceania part of it. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I guess you must know this, but, uh, it's a piece of information I wanted to highlight nonetheless. Uh, one of the captains of the ships, uh, of the many ships that sailed, To, towards Oceania to, well, acquire uh, forced laborers was Miguel Grau, who is basically, in Peru at least, it's, he's just remembered as a war hero, a, a hero of the War of the Pacific, uh, coincidentally. But he wasn't just that. <laughs> he had, uh, let's say, uh, another uh, aspects to his uh, person, right? And now, uh, oh, something that I... Uh, found very interesting was, uh, broadly speaking, the disciplining of labor, because you highlight that, uh, very tellingly, young men were often sent to work in the ports or in ships as a corrective measure of last resort. Broadly speaking, how did a working day at the port of Callao or aboard a commercial, commercial ship look like? What was the extension of a workday? What were the dangers one might face with certain frequency? And returning to the young men punished by being sent to this new life, uh, how was labor disciplined? Yeah, um, one of the things that I, I, I thought was important to highlight in this, uh, in terms of laboring at port, is that, uh, and this happens on, on board ships as well, is that one person's job kind of really depended upon another person's job. So one might, for instance, you know, be involved with moving goods from the ship to a lancha, And then another group would work to take that lancha to shore. Another group might move it, move the goods to another location. 
right? So uh, uh, the work schedule or the work day uh, might be kind of um, piecemeal or kind of you do one part of a larger process, but that that element of it could only function, could only happen if other people and other parts of the uh, uh, the labor process actually did their work as well, right? And similar to this, just as those people are working to get those goods off of the ship and into the kind of customs house or onto the dock, there might be another group of workers parallel to them that are uh, doing the same exact thing, but doing it with passengers, right? So again, so like in, in order for, for circulation to function here, whether that be with goods or with people, uh, many different workers in different uh, labor functions had to all kind of work together. And of course, a good portion of this was quite dangerous, right? Um, a bale might accidentally be released and fall on someone. Uh, carrying sacks of cement was uh, something that wore on the body over time or that you could trip, you could fall, you could drop it on yourself, right? And fixing parts of the engine might put oneself in danger as well. One of the cases that I look at is, you know, somebody who dropped a very large bolt on themselves and, and, and had to lose a finger as a result. Um, and I think that I touch on this in the book in this first chapter. Uh, I actually do think, though, that it is something that uh, much more work can be done on the topic of the dangers of uh, maritime and, and dock work in Peru and Chile. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully there is more work on that, right? And one of the things that's central to, to, to maritime life is, is hierarchy. Uh, I think one of the kind of classic historians who works on the topic for, in the Atlantic world, of course, is Marcus Redeker. Um, <clears throat> for my case in the Pacific, what I wanted to show was uh, that there was a kind of a rationale for why men might want to desert a ship. Of what, and in addition to that, why they might find common cause with other workers. Right. So one of the cases that I mentioned in the book is when workers on uh, Peruvian and Chilean workers on a ship um, joined together to protest their treatment on board. So it's those kind of moments of people coming together in reaction to the hierarchy and discipline on a, on a, on a ship uh, that allows for this kind of collaborative relationships, right? This, this kind of radical uh, reworking of hierarchy to their own advantage. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, I think, throughout the book. And again, I think there's, there's a lot more that can be done on this particular topic. Um, you know, uh, yeah, does that answer? Hopefully that answers the question. Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, and something that caught my attention was the scope of the spread of uh, venereal uh, diseases within the maritime workforce. What can we learn about this population by studying this subject? And how did state uh, authorities try to avoid sanitary crisis? Yeah, this is something that, um, similar to what I, what I mentioned just a little while ago, I think there's much more can be done on this topic. Um, and for my study, what I wanted to do, you know, one of the um, the studies of, uh, of venereal disease and sex work that I found in the case of, for the case of Kayao, was that the researcher had uh, labeled the, 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 the country of origin of all the people that they treated or were being, or who had been treated for venereal disease. And when I saw the kind of list of different countries, I thought, wow, this could be a way to, to show um, the cosmopolitan nature, again, of these port cities, of this kind of ship life, that we can see that we have kind of sex work, 
a lot of these people were involved with the maritime industry and we can show via uh, a venereal disease how many different people from different places were here at this particular point, right? Um, but I also think that what, what we see with this is it allows me to think a little bit about patriarchy, of how medical professionals and uh, state authorities, uh, instead of thinking about the role that men had to play within the reproduction and kind of um, spreading of venereal uh, diseases, is that these medical authorities and state figures are putting all the blame on the women, right? That the women sex workers are the people at the at the center of uh, of the spread of venereal diseases, that they are, as to use their kind of language, that they're kind of the central node in the kind of uh, uh, venereal disease problem, right? And so that in turn means that a lot of folks in power are trying to put together new rules and regulations with respect to uh, sex work. And this isn't, mostly it's not, almost entirely, I should say, almost entirely not about regulating what men are doing or not doing or how they're engaging with women. It's almost entirely about how women uh, are living their lives, right? Of Are they registered or not? Should we have a registry or should we not have a registry? What types of um, medical checkups should we force these women into doing? What kinds of inst- uh, our, our, um, properties or institutions should we have these women in? And, you know, as I think uh, Pelagino shows so well in his uh, recent book on, on sex work in, in Lima of that kind of process between regulation and, and abolition, right? Um, so I think for me, at least, that helps me to kind of think a little bit about uh, sex work on venereal diseases um, and the connections that we can draw, connections and parallels between the uh, the situation in somewhere like Callao and uh, Lima and Valparaiso, Chile. Yeah, I wanted to, to address that because I, I thought it was... Um an astute uh, use of a, of a group of sources, you know? That's why I found it especially interesting. Thank you for that. And now, uh, you're welcome. Now, uh, coming to a hot topic, <laughs> given that ports and ships were mostly masculine, homosocial places, it's quite logical to think that the performance of masculinity and heteronormativity was used by these men as a means of maintaining standing and prestige. But this story is a little bit more complex. It's not as if homosexuality didn't form part of their livelihoods, and women did work in ships, though mostly in subordinate roles. Could you please help us understand this um, masculinity question, if we can call it that way? Yeah, no, you're right. It is is a little more complex than that, and... um... You know, for me, when I was approaching this topic and this study, I was kind of influenced a lot by some of the uh, the turn within Latin American history to think st- and take seriously issues of gender, uh, a turn that we really see kind of coming out in the in the 90s and the, in, going into the 2000s. Um, and in this rather homosocial kind of sphere, and I don't want to suggest, as I think as you mentioned, right, that this is a place in which men are just being men with other men and that's it, uh, right? Uh, whether that be on, on board ship or at port, there are women around and and uh, taking part in this process. Yet at the same time, within the labor um, of a ship or a port, a lot of the time we do have a lot of men hanging out with a lot of other men. And part of that is guys trying to teach other guys how to become proper males, right? And it's something that 
is hard to come by archivally, right? It's hard to figure out how do we get into this, these ideas of masculinity, um, right? But if we, I think, put together some different things like working class newspapers, as well as, um, you know, literature, as well as some kind of court cases, we can see the ways in which this happens. And what I found, what I, you know, claim to have found and in in what I argue about in the book is that we have uh, precisely that. We have men trying to teach other, other men how to be men, how to be proper men, that they imbue this idea of masculinity, not only with things like muscles and kind of strength and a certain tone of voice, but they also um, put into it, uh, at least anarchists in Chile did, they put into it a, a proper politics of how one should engage in politics, of how one should uh, interact with strikes, uh, right? Mm-hmm. That to break a strike line is in itself a kind of unmasculine thing, right? So that's, I think, what I'm trying to get at. And one of the other things I was trying to kind of push here is that there are kind of cultural ideas about masculinity, which all kind of I just mentioned right now, right? But that these are all things that are also related to kind of the material world and interpretations of that, right? Of how one actually does labor, how one works at the at the work site, and how that in itself is also a part of being properly masculine, according to some of these uh, to some of these men. Um, and of course, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the answer to this question, how all this is related to how of, to their views of women and women in the labor market, but also women in politics uh, and women in as kind of uh, uh, family members, as mothers, right? Well, I think we'll have an opportunity to return to the subject of uh, anarchist masculinity in, well, later, in a couple of minutes. But uh, before we do that, I think we could uh, discuss the third chapter in your book, which focuses on cholera and transnational uh, medical networks. You argue convincingly that both the cholera epidemic of the 1880s and the fear it generated exacerbated the trend in in state expansion. First of all, what's cholera like? And what was this specific epidemic like? Just as importantly, how did the Chilean and Peruvian states react? Moreover, to which extent did Latin American states work together to solve this problem? Yeah, so this, this cholera chapter, which sits right in the middle and as chapter three was you know, not a chapter that I initially planned to write, but it's something that I kind of uh, found myself doing as I was in the archive and finding more and more material on it. Um, so cholera is, you know, it's a it's an intestinal infection. Uh, typically, uh, patients who have it uh, also experience diarrhea, vomiting, and cramps. Um, much of the literature that, that that is about cholera goes into great detail about uh, different people's experience with it, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a very intense situation. Uh, I decided I, I wanted to pull back from that a little bit and not go into that much detail about it, um, since so much of the other literature on cholera does that for me. Um, in this case, cholera hits Chile pretty hard. Um, it, you know, comes from the, the Atlantic to Brazil, Argentina, then crosses over the Andes into Chile uh, in late 1886. And it runs rampant throughout central Chile for basically through for the next about two years or so, a year and a half or so. And what I tried to show in this chapter was that because the medical professionals in the 1880s still did not have a complete idea of what cholera was, of how 
uh, Colorado's organism kind of moved and, and kind of spread, that this meant that both that the, that the state had to react um, in a kind of variety of different ways, that it had to kind of try to shut things down in certain certain locations, it had to restrict food consumption, like the consumption of fruits, for instance, um, and that it had to work together with other places. So one of the things that I document here is how, for instance, the uh, san sanitation conference that happens in Lima in the beginning months of 1888, how different states in South America came together to, to try to put out some types of regulations or some type of framework for how to deal with, uh, with things like cholera, with things like yellow fever, right? I think all these states in South America knew that this wasn't going to be a one-time event. They, they had experience with yellow fever in the past, for instance. They knew that they needed something. And to kind of return to what we were talking about earlier with respect to the maritime world, uh, I don't think that it's a coincidence that the vast majority of articles within this sanitation conference of early 1888 deal with the maritime world. They deal with diseases uh, crossing borders via ships, right? So that's what I was kind of really trying to focus on in this particular chapter. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Great. Uh, and before we leave the chapter, <laughs> uh, or before we, before we close it, maybe it's more accurate to put it that way. Um, reading about David Matos' travel to Chile was, well, surprising and captivating. What did he and the Peruvian state hope to achieve with this project? And how did it go? Because I remember he and, both the, and also the Chilean doctors faced quite some difficulties. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's one, again, you know, one of these cases in which, like, I have a hard time putting myself in his shoes uh, in the 1880s for the Peruvian state to come to me as a medical student uh, and say, hey, you know, we would like to task you with going to Chile to investigate this outbreak of cholera um, and send us back reports. Right? It's, a pretty big, it's a pretty big ask from the Peruvian state. Um, yet that's exactly what he did, right? He goes to Chile. Uh, he stays there. He conducts research alongside other medical professionals in Chile. He goes to uh, house, goes on house visits uh, for different patients. He takes a trip throughout different parts of central and southern Chile to kind of see what the Chilean state exactly is doing. And what I argue in this chapter is, on the one hand, he is trying to teach proven authorities of what cholera does, of how it travels. He's trying to teach them how the Chilean state is reacting to cholera, of what works and what hasn't worked. And he's basically kind of trying to just relay as much information back as possible uh, because the possibility of cholera reaching Peruvian shores is very real. Um, you know, how does it go? Well, he runs up, as you said, some, so there's a bunch of difficulties there, right? He travels to, to Chile. He doesn't have any scientific instruments with, with him whatsoever. So he has to in turn rely upon Chilean researchers and their 
their their their instruments, right? And this, I think, for me at least, shows uh, how material items, in this case, like microscopes, uh, of watch glasses, etc., helped to forge collaborative medical relationships between Peruvians and Chileans in the 1880s. Um, the Chilean medical community seems to welcome him in, and I think this ties into what I, we were just talking about a little while ago about masculinity, that the medical professions uh, in both Peru and Chile were highly masculine. Um, I think this might be an element of why they accepted him into their ranks, uh, and they kind of talk about him with high praise. And the Peruvian uh, doctors also do the same, right? They're kind of happy with his work. They're saying he's you know, glorifying Peruvian medicine, uh, and whatnot. Yet at the same time, as I, you know, tried to argue, like this, this, this national medicine is only done via transnational collaboration. Uh, and for me, that's the kind of one of the central pushes that I'm trying to make in this in this chapter. Uh, regarding the masculinity uh, comment, it's interesting because naturally, as one could, well, may, maybe it depends on the person, but. As I would expect, the masculinity of David Matos is uh, quite different from the traditional working class masculinity, which I'd say reveals or, well, yeah, showcases the, the fact that in many ways masculinity is, well, a tool uh, to be used by, the, by, by men more than a natural law, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think we've uh, reached the question regarding uh, anarchist masculinity. So, uh, and not only that, but also class formation. <laughs> Broadly speaking, the maritime workers of Peru and Chile develop a strong class consciousness, as shown in 1918, when the crews of incoming ships refused to cross the picket line formed by the striking dock workers of Moyendo, an important port town in southern Peru. In your book, this process is most clearly visible in Moyendo, since it had already happened in Valparaíso. First, there were separate craft unions, then a single union, and finally a radical anarchist union. Could you help me and the listeners understand this process of class formation? And what role did masculinity possibly play in gluing together this uh, diverse and dispersed group of people together? Yeah, um... This chapter, I think, was when I first started the project, this was kind of what I imagined would be the kind of entirety of the book, right? This kind of <laughs> broader narrative of like of, of, of important maritime work organizing. And then in the end, it became kind of one chapter with like mixes and other parts. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really important to do um, in the case of Moyendo was one, Moyendo, although an important port city, uh, compared to Kaya, there's far, far less research done on the city. Um, and I would argue that in, even in the case of Kaya, there could be more research in terms of labor and working class history there. Uh, and second, for Moyendo, what I wanted to do was make sure that I didn't suggest that uh, this kind of radical idea of industrial organizing was brought to them via Chileans, right? That that when Chilean Wallis arrived in the middle part of the 1920s, that workers in Moyendo had already arrived at that particular political consciousness um, because of local organizing, because of things that had transpired on the ground. Um, and the narrative of Moyendo, I think, as you kind of 
ask or point out in the question here, right, is that basically in the 1910s, we see um, different groups of workers from across the port um, putting together petitions for better pay and better working conditions uh, and, you know, other stuff that wouldn't be involved with these demands like um, uh, work schedule, um, rest on that kind of stuff. But that initially when they start to do this in the middle in the middle part of the decade, uh, particularly after 1916, um, they're doing so as in the form of individual unions, right? And that because they're doing it as individual unions, the 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 companies on the state are kind of pushed back and they're able to flatly, you know, reject many of these demands. Now I suspect that because of the linked nature of port work, some of these union members in particular crafts had already had conversations with folks from other unions. And that when the individual petitions are rejected, uh, that, that that is when the kind of formal organizing across individual unions kind of really begins. And it's then in that kind of in that process uh, going into 1918 that they start to organize again as a port whole. And it's that time in which they kind of begin to recognize and realize their power in an industrial faction. They, they, they recognize themselves not only as one person as as or one union in one part of the port, but rather as uh, a part of a larger process that is port work in general. And it's only at that particular moment that uh, state authorities and, and companies in the port have to deal in good faith with these unions because they know that if the if the port goes on strike as a whole, uh, then they're in some some deep trouble. And then after that, we have this kind of relative calm for the next couple of years after 1918, when one of these, uh, when the, the the strike is kind of is is, is settled. Um, but some unions in those intervening years are doing kind of individual petitions for certain things, and 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 they achieve smaller goals. Uh, but then when we get into the middle part of the 1920s, we see this a second cycle of organizing happen uh, in conjunction with railroad workers uh, and other folks. And I think the difference that we see in this 19, middle part of the 1920s is that they're now starting to organize in, in, in kind of an explicit, with an explicitly anarcho-syndicalist politics injected into their, their labor demands. And that, in turn, makes them a little bit more, um, uh, it, it concerns the state a little bit more. Right. The state and the police in the 1916 to 1918 round never talked about these workers as you know, Bolsheviks, as, uh, uh, as you know, people with radical ideas, et cetera. They talked about them in, in kind of old, kind of very kind of relaxed terms, right? Of like, these are some workers, we might not agree with what they're doing, but they're doing it in a peaceful way. They're, they're doing, you know, they're not, they're not, they're just Peruvians trying to get better stuff, right? But then it's in that middle part of the 1920s where it's like, oh no, but they're also influenced by Bolshevism. They're also influenced by anarchism. They also have connections to the Chileans. And then you put all those things together and the, and the for the state, and it's like the world is coming down all around them. And I think masculinity is tied into all of this because um, in their demands, a lot of the time they're, they, they reference themselves as male heads of household. They talk about how the, the, the uh, lowering ability to purchase stuff Right, that their real wages had gone down, and that as a result, their families are going to suffer. So the Peruvian state and the Peru- and, and these companies should negotiate with them in good faith because if they don't, it's going to ruin the kind of the port family life. And I think this is something that, although the state isn't really kind of taking this into consideration, I think internally for the unions, this helps to kind of 
build alliances beyond simply just the, the work site. They're building alliances through the home as well. That's great. Uh, just one thing that I wanted to comment on or maybe speculate a little bit, if, if you allow me, uh, is the fact that while masculinity, the, the reason I, I wanted to ask you the question is while it, uh, it can be uh, instrumentalized by by anarchist organizers, it can also risk being an exclusionary narrative, right? I, I mean, I'm speculating, but uh, as long as you uh, speak about workers as men, you might perpetuate uh, the segmentation of the labor market, for example. You know, I'm thinking about the women who mostly did cleaning uh, jobs, for example, in, in the ships. But it's just a thought. Yeah, no, I think, I, th I think you're right. And I think um, it's, uh, you know, if, if you were to kind of ask me, like, what is one of the, the weaker parts of the, of the work as a whole, I think that that's absolutely one of them. So I, I, uh, I don't push back against it. I, I agree with you uh, on that point, Luca. Mm -hmm. And yeah, ah, yeah, that this is something that I found very interesting as well. Uh, when talking about the anarchists who led working class organizations in Peru and Chile at this time, it's important to highlight the Pacific as a space where all of this takes place, as shown by the connections with Australian and Japanese anarchists sustained by, by the Chilean uh, IWW, for example. What did the political culture of Pacific anarchists look like? And how did they interact across borders? Because that's something that, in a certain way, was uh, mind-blowing, something I didn't imagine before. Yeah, you know, and I, th I think if you were to read, for instance, on the, I'll, you know, use for, for the time being the Chilean case, if you were to re read the Chilean wobbly newspaper, that, uh, La Voz del Mar, that runs from 1924 to 27, one of the things you'll, that will pop out immediately is that they are reading broadly, right? They're paying attention to stuff happening across the globe. You see references to thinkers from different European countries, from the Americas. Uh, I mean, it's really a remarkable kind of spread. Of course, the vast majority of what they're doing is, is, is Chile concern, but we see references to events happening in Japan, right? We see folks um, being deported from Australia, heading to Chile, and already knowing people who are there in Chile who had previously been uh, uh, deported from Australia. We, re we see references to strikes or other types of labor agitation or just political processes in general in places like Ecuador, in Mexico, and in the U.S., um, And one of the things that I think is important uh, for me, at least in the in the Peruvian case, is that the, the the historiography of Peruvian anarchism tends to link it directly and almost solely with Argentina. And of course, Argentine anarchism and Argentine anarchists are important for the Peruvian uh, movement. Right? That's I'm not trying to suggest otherwise. But I think that to talk only about them. Uh, Uh, and when I say them, I mean the Argentine connection, is in a way a form of reproducing a kind of Atlantic-centered history of anarchism and one that marginalizes the Pacific and the connections that are forged there. And so what I was trying to do here was really, you know, 
center of the Pacific in these connections. You know, if we go back to the first chapter, a lot of the folks who are on some of these ships are from the Pacific Rim. They're not from Atlantic parts of, of Latin America for the most part. And so given that, we see these kind of circulation of ships going from places like Chile to, to Peru to Panama and continuing up north. And these are all kind of connected in this Pacific world, right? Uh, and for me, that's 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 another history of anarchism that has yet to be really kind of fully explored. Um, how are these folks uh, interacting, right? Uh, one of the things that I do is I trace the sale um, of newspapers uh, in the Chilean case along Peruvian shores um, to show that we have um, anarchist newspapers being sold to folks in different ports, that we even have cases of newspapers circulating outside of a particular Peruvian port to other Peruvian ports. Um, so we have this widespread, I think, um, circulation of knowledge, of politics, and, and ways of doing organizing uh, in the Pacific world that, for the most part, really hasn't been explored very much by, by many uh, historians or scholars in general. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe in a less serious but equally important note, <laughs> since you describe so many, uh, well, some, ma many of them aren't that funny, like some of them are actually quite bleak, but <laughs> since you describe many funny scenes in your monograph, could you tell us about your favorite anecdote uh, you found while researching? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, one of the one of the ones that I, I really enjoyed was when I was researching for the the last chapter and uh, on policing in the Pacific, and we see the Peruvian state and the Chilean state both looking into the use of jiu-jitsu for their local police in South America and doing so. And I don't know if they knew that the other country was doing it, but they're doing it at the exact same time, almost like just a few months apart. And in addition to that that uh, the Chilean Navy takes this idea with them to other places and, you know, uh, uh, shows off how to do jujitsu. Uh, this is kind of one of those stories where I, I jumped into it and I, and I thought, wow, the Chilean Navy and the police forces of Peru, the exact same moment, hiring instructor, inst hiring Japanese instructors to teach their folks uh, jujitsu as a new form of policing in South America. I thought it was just fascinating and funny, and something totally unexpected for me uh, while researching this book. They, they even went to Japan to recruit them, right? Yes. That's, that's a, a hilarious image <laughs> for me at the very least. And well, now that we've mentioned policing many times, I think it's time to, to address the elephant in the room. And yeah, I'd like to ask you, who were the targets of policing? Like, uh, what did policemen asking for extra funds uh, bring up when asking for those extra funds? Yeah, um, you know, one of the, what, I, what, I, what I try to do in this, in this final chapter of the book is uh, relate the increase in radical organizing or of labor organizing in general to the growth of police uh, and different types of policing techniques in both Peru and Chile. Um, in the proving case, I also look at the the kind of police asking for more funds, not only to kind of uh, track labor organizing, uh, this happens also in the Chilean case, but also to track this kind of cosmopolitan population, right? What in the proving case, they're kind of calling this, uh, this floating population of people that have the ability to come to port, commit crimes, and then apparently 
jump on a boat and take off again, right? So they're asking for uh, money for these kinds of new, to learn these new policing techniques, but at the same time, in a much more uh, mundane, but yet at the same time, important way, they're asking for office supplies. They're asking for more photographic material to take more pictures of suspects. They're asking for um, more police officers to help them cover a difficult city to police like Vaparaiso, which is a very small, flat, poor area, and then winding hills throughout, right? Um, so they're trying to kind of figure out how do we do policing in a modern way and how do we, uh, what kinds of materials do we actually need in order to do such a thing? Um, and I think in this case, it's important to look at those small materials, like uh, like desk, for instance, or writing paper, um, in order to, to make policing actually happen. And this is, I think, one of the things that um, uh, uh, Weld in her uh, paper, Cadavers, looking at Guatemala, uh, kind of shows very clearly how important those office supplies really are for, for policing. Great. And what practices did they use to police those uh, these port cities? You've already hinted at uh, the supplies they needed to do that. I'd like to I'd like you to highlight the attempts made at transnational policing as well. Sure. Um, some of the things that they're doing right are they're they're incorporating the the Bertillon system. They're incorporating uh, dactyloscopy. They are you know experimenting with the fingerprints. They are doing all that kind of those these things of modern criminology that they thought were important and this really comes out of you know international discussions between police um, officers between captains etc uh, this comes out pretty strongly in the kind of transnational context during the 1905 and then 1920 uh, uh, international police conferences uh, which are held and the first one in 1905 um, does not include Peru, but the 1921 does. And we have the kind of gathering of all these police forces or at least heads of police forces from these different places uh, in South America, like Santiago, like uh, Buenos Aires, like Rio de Janeiro. And they're coming together and they're kind of having these conversations about how do we deal with this, um, with criminals in the early part of the 20th century? How do we deal with labor agitators who are not that concerned with borders and are very much interested in crossing them? And the... Uh, the funny thing that happens here, right, is the police almost tap into the exact same um, politics of transnational cooperation that the anarchists are tapping into, right? That, hey, we, if the, if the anarchists are like, hey, capitalism is a global thing, it's something that we have to attack on all fronts, wherever it may be, the police in turn are saying something to the effect of, well, if these labor agitators and uh, 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 itinerant people are going around the world and doing things in different places, then we in turn have to be able to police uh, regardless of borders. So in that case, we have conversations about uh, between different police forces of what does a good profile picture of a suspect look like, right? How big must the head be on the photographic plate uh, so that if a police officer in Santiago or in Lima or in Buenos Aires sees the person on the street, they can say, hey, I recognize that person or that they can kind of um, duplicate some of this uh, criminological techniques across borders and that there are the officers trained in such a way that they can do it the same way that they would in Santiago as they would in Lima. Uh, 
in the case of uh, what I highlight in this chapter is a lot of the par of, of the uh, moments of transnational policing, but also parallel developments, whether that be the case of uh, jujitsu in both places, right? Or it's the incorporation of new new systems, like the Bertillon system, for instance. Um, or it be cases in which uh, police officers and, and worker sections in Lima are sending documents back and forth about their labor problem, about policing in their particular city. And even if there's not a kind of officer from Santiago Valparaiso going to, to, to Lima to engage in this kind of conversations in person, they're at least sharing ideas. They're sharing concepts and practices across the border. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the, taking the time to uh, talk with me and yeah, uh, to, to help me prepare this interview for the listeners. But before we wrap up our interview, could you tell us about the projects you're currently working on? Sure. Um, and, you know, and again, Luca, thank you very much for, for inviting me, uh, for reading the book and for uh, providing, you know, providing me with this great conversation here. Um, for, for me, the, what I'd like to work on next, uh, and this kind of ties into a bit of the, the book project, is I'd like to do a history of, of Callao from more or less the 1740s through the 1920s. Hmm. Um, and I'd like to do this through the perspective of port and maritime labor, uh, again, connecting it to this current work. And the idea here would be um, for a good portion of Callao's history, it was viewed almost as a kind of, as a port to the Black Pacific, as a port in which um, enslaved Africans and free people of color labored on the port and were a central piece of this, um, of port life. And so what I like to do is kind of trace that from the 1740s, in particular after the earthquake tsunami of uh, 46, uh, and kind of draw that history always up until the through abolition, obviously through the 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 the, uh, the use of Chinese and uh, and uh, laborers and uh, laborers from Oceania coming through the port uh, in the 19th century, and then tie that perhaps if I can, maybe we'll see to uh, developments in the um, in the early labor movement. Uh, in the port of Callao. Um, this is all in very much in the very beginning stages. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm currently doing reading, kind of bibliographic reading, as well as trying to apply for grants to get back to the archive. Um, but this is this is the, the fundamental project that I'd like to work on for the coming years um, that will, you know, again, tie in the Pacific, tie in labor, um, and then in this time, kind of center uh, free and unfree labor. Uh, in the case of in the in, in the kind of location of Callao, that sounds uh, very very exciting. I I mean we'll have to invite you back to this podcast when that's published. I don't know if I'll be the host, but I'm sure someone will definitely be interested. So I think we can now finish our interview. But before we do that, I'd like to remember the listeners that the book is called Beyond Patriotic Phobias, Connections, Cooperation, and Solidarity in the Peruvian-Chilean-Pacific World. And it was published by the University of California Press, written by Dr. Joshua Zavala. And yeah, thank you for your time, Josh.